Welcome to Cancer Docs Talk, a podcast series where oncologists discuss the latest cancer news produced by Sylvester Comprehensive Cancer Center at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. Our host is Dr. Gilberto Lopes, Associate Director of Global Oncology at Sylvester and a renowned medical oncologist specializing in lung cancer. Welcome to Sylvester Comprehensive Cancer Center's Cancer Docs Talk. I'm your host, Gilberto Lopes, and we are happy to have you here. Today, we're going to be discussing my main area of research interest, which is called global oncology. This is a very new area of academic interest and has just, over the last few years, become recognized as such. Uh, This is the area of academic endeavor that tries to improve cancer control and care around the world, not just in high-income countries, but also in low-resource settings. I usually start my talks on the subject by showing a picture. And in this picture, there's two gentlemen in their 60s. And these gentlemen are dressed in the garb of the Brazilian and South American cowboy, the gaucho. The gentlemen are actually my grandfather, uh, Moises, and his younger brother, Fabio. And the reason I like to show this picture is because they represent the generation that lived the demographic transition that made non-communicable diseases in general, and cancer in particular, become the main cause of mortality around the world and not just in rich countries. They came from the countryside and moved to the cities, and in the cities they worked doing what they could to make sure that their children, especially their children's children, would have more opportunities than they had and would have a better life. Unfortunately, my great uncle Fabio did not get to see his granddaughters graduate from law school a few years ago. He developed chronic myelogenous leukemia, CML, a disease for, for which an oral treatment, imatinib, was available um, in the United States, but not so in the Brazilian public health care system. He fought against the disease for a few months and unfortunately succumbed to it. Um, barely six months after he was diagnosed. My grandfather, on the other hand, had served in the Brazilian army during World War II, and because of that, he had access to a different healthcare system, which is quite similar to the US um, Veteran Affairs Administration system. When he developed cancer, he was able to get the procedure he needed, he had adjuvant treatment, and last year we celebrated his 95th uh, birthday, with um, about 100 members of the family, including his older sister, who had just turned 98. And this story actually exemplifies and gives you a very clear picture of what global oncology is. We see that two brothers coming from the same countryside to the same city, working hard, had cancer, and then completely different outcomes, a very clear disparity depending on the healthcare system that they could actually have access to. And this is what we do with global oncology. As a working definition, we have been working with the American Society of Cancer, American Society of Clinical Oncology, ASCO, to define what this field and this area of interest actually should do. And the current definition is that global oncology is the area that collaboratively addresses disparities and differences in cancer biology, prevention, care, research, education, and the disease's social and human impact around the world. It includes a full spectrum of activities ranging from epidemiology to implementation science and also including public health policy, outcomes research, and health economics. When we go back just about 10 years, 
and we started to do work on this, these issues around cancer treatment in low-income countries, we got a lot of pushback and a lot of resistance because it had not yet been realized that infectious diseases are not as big killers as they used to be in the recent past. And because of that, ministries of health and the international public health mechanisms did not yet give enough priority to non-communicable diseases and cancer. It was a 2011 meeting at the United Nations, a high-level meeting on non-communicable diseases, of which we participated through the Union International Against Cancer, which is the umbrella um, organization that brings in together cancer associations from around the world, that we started to bring this issue to the fore. It is clear that today most patients who die around the world, not just in high-income countries, die because of non-communicable, non-transmissible diseases, and it was clear in 2011 that we needed to do something about it. And that first something was a meeting at the United Nations to bring to the fore and to make sure that member countries realize that this is a big issue. When we look at the differences in outcomes in cancer care in high income and low resource settings, that becomes even more clear. While in a place like the United States, for every three diagnoses of cancer, we have only one death, in the lowest income countries, we can have up to eight deaths per every 10 cases. So this is a large disparity. And while some of it is because of uh, low investment, a lot of it is because the little money that does get to healthcare system in low resource settings is not used in the best way possible. And this is one of the many things that we have been working on on global oncology. Since the 2011 UN high-level meeting, the UN institutions have started to deal with cancer at a global level, and we have had the privilege to be able to work on two main projects that have been led by the World Health Organization, WHO, and again by UICC. I was vice chair of the project that actually um, revealed all of the cancer medications in the WHO essential medicines list, pretty much noticing that for 20 years no new medications had been included, and um, especially important medications, not just chemotherapies, but also targeted agents such as imatinib for CML, as well as rituximab for lymphomas that expressed CD20, and trastuzumab for HER2-positive breast cancer had not been included. And these are medications that can make a difference in public health and in the care of countless patients around the world. This process took about a year and was presented four years ago. And through it, we were able to add 16 medications, including these three medications that I mentioned. And these medications now become the basis that each healthcare system around the world should have as the minimum medications that they should uh, include in their systems to be able to serve their patients with cancer. We also worked and was part of the steering committee for a different project called the WHO Priority List for medical devices to pre prevent, diagnose, and treat cancer. And this is a project that also took about a year, and we were able to create a guide for healthcare systems that are starting to try to create their main cancer center, to create their model cancer center. And these guidelines, these um, this list of priority devices, helps cancer systems and cancer centers see what is the minimum that they should have to be able to provide services to their targeted population. These two projects um, also uh, help 
patients around the world by making sure that we have a minimum of quality in how cancer care and cancer control is delivered. Another area that we have been working is that by realizing that you really cannot start running and riding bicycles before you actually learn to walk and crawl, we really need to make sure that countries realize what they can and cannot do with the resources that they currently have so that they can move forward in a stepwise fashion in the most cost-effective way, getting the most benefit for the investments that they make. And the way we actually do that is with a tool called Resource Stratified Guidelines. What these guidelines do is that we bring experts from multidisciplinary areas and from different geographic regions so that they can review a specific topic. And by doing so, they can go step by step on what is the minimum that you need to have in a healthcare system to prevent and diagnose and treat cancer and how to move forward getting the greatest benefit for the least amount of money invested so that you can then improve care. By doing that, hopefully also providing better economic opportunities to populations and as there's more growth and greater wealth in different countries, you can actually move forward to the next step in the ladder and so on and so forth so that eventually you get to the maximum enhanced settings that we see in high-income countries. And we have recently, in late February 2019, published two guidelines that I co-led at ASCO and these were the guidelines on early detection for colorectal cancer and the treatment of patients with early stage colorectal cancer. Colorectal cancer is a very important disease in many countries when you actually put men and women together, it becomes the most common or the second most common cancer and it has topped the charts for mortality in a number of low and income countries as well as high income countries in North America and Western Europe. And what these guidelines do with participation from colleagues from around the world and under the stamp of methodology quality of ASCO is to actually look at both the early detection and the treatment of patients with early stage colorectal cancer to guide countries from very low income to high income on what it is that they should have in their healthcare systems and how they should organize these so that they can move forward to improve care for patients with colorectal cancer around the world. I was the first author at the Journal of Global Oncology publication on the early detection of colorectal cancer guidelines. And what these guidelines do is that they separate populations and healthcare systems in four different categories by resource. We have a basic category in which you should have the core resources of fundamental services that are absolutely necessary for any public and health primary healthcare system needs to function. We then move up to limited, which are second-tier resources or services, to enhanced when you have more resources to continue investing on healthcare systems, and finally maximum, which uses what we would usually consider standard of care in high-income countries. Um, here it's important to mention that resource stratified guidelines are meant to make sure that countries can develop their healthcare systems and their cancer systems in ways that are that are uh, logical and make the most cost-effective sense, but they should never serve as an excuse not to continue improvement. So they should not be an end on themselves. Each country should find at what tier, what level they currently are, and immediately start to strive to come up to the next rank in the ladder. 
And that is the main message that I like to pass about these, that you should not be stuck in the lower levels. You should always be striving to get the most resources so that you can do the best um, effort available to be able to treat, prevent, and diagnose cancer. The main important aspects in colorectal cancer for early detection is that we should use the methods that we have, starting with the most cost-effective one and then moving forward to the ones that are still cost-effective but not as much and a little harder to get in low-resource settings. So we discuss how um, tests like fecal test, fecal immunochemical tests, and how endoscopy, such as sigma endoscopy and colonoscopy, should be used in a stepwise fashion in different healthcare systems so that we can increase the diagnosis in early stages of colorectal cancer when patients have a much better chance of having a cure. In the United States, most of the targeted populations for colonoscopies, which is the most effective, uh, albeit most expensive screening test, Available and we, we see very good coverage in the U.S. today. We have started to see drops in the mortality rates for colorectal cancer, and we hope to be able to replicate that around the world. Many countries, and I'm going to use Brazil as my home country as one of the examples, even though it's a high middle-income country, it has no specific screening programs for colorectal cancer, even though it does for cervical cancer and for breast cancer. So this is a gap that we hope our new publications will help fill, and we're looking forward to seeing interaction with colleagues from around the world and seeing how they're starting to integrate these thoughts and these suggestions in their daily uh, practices as well. The second guideline that was published in the late, uh, in the last week of February 2019 is the guideline related to the treatment of patients with early stage colorectal cancer. And this is particularly focused on what to do for patients who do not have metastatic disease and patients with colon cancer that have stage one, which is uh, one and two, which is actually very early disease with no lymph node involvement, uh, and patients with stage three, which means that they have lymph node involvement. These are patients that can have a good chance at cure. Patients at stage one and two have 80 to 90% chance uh, or higher of being cured without any systemic treatment, and surgery is the main element in their care. Surgery today can actually be done in a laparoscopic way, and that usually does help patients to stay in the hospital for uh, less time and to have a quicker recovery as well. Those are not usually available in the lower income areas of the world, and a regular open surgery would be a very reasonable alternative that is less costly and more likely to be available as well. For patients who do have lymph nodes and that they are found after they have surgery, then chemotherapy becomes the standard of care. The regimen that's mostly used in the United States and Western Europe is a combination of fluoroprimidine and oxaliplatin, and these regimens usually have acceptable toxicity, and they have helped us save thousands of lives of patients with stage 3 colorectal cancer. For the lowest income settings, uh, often oxaliplatin is harder to be able to uh, be accessible. And even though in many countries it has not become generic, the need for an infusional um, way of giving 5-AFU can make things harder as well. But we have recommendations of what to do if you don't have a well-developed medical oncology system and we hope that these, again, will help 
countries and healthcare systems around the world increase access to treatment of patients with early-stage colorectal cancer, improving mortality in a stepwise fashion, uh, looking forward to preventing many deaths in years to come. At um, Sylvester Comprehensive Cancer Center, we have had a global oncology formal program for about three years, and there's a number of activities that we do in this program. Besides the research projects that I mentioned, we have a number of partner institutions around uh, the region in Latin America and the Caribbean. We have colleagues that come visit us and spend different amounts of times with us between a year and between a, a month and a year, and sometimes shorter visits as well. And we have a number of joint uh, educational activities such as tumor boards and lectures and virtual presence projects as well. We also are able to do telemedicine visits for patients who are not present in South Florida. And we have a number of um, initiatives to sponsor and foster research in global oncology topics as well. Every year we have a global oncology fellow who's a colleague from a low or middle-income country in Latin America or the Caribbean who comes to the U.S. and spends a year with us in Miami. And then we tailor this project so that candidates learn not just about the clinical aspects of caring for cancer, but also those policy, healthcare systems, health economics, cost-effectiveness analysis, and whatever it is that that specific candidate needs to go back home and improve care in their communities. For some of these um, fellows, it has been to just work on the clinical aspects and to learn how to do comparative effectiveness research. And for some, it may be to develop phase one uh, trial capabilities and earlier phase trial capabilities as well. So this is a program that has been open. We're going to be opening our um, application process for October 2019 in the next few weeks. So if you're interested, please do contact us and we can get you more details. We also have research grants that we use to foster research on this subject. And we have now given six grants for different projects. Some of the more interesting ones have including helping Costa Rica develop their um, cancer registries. We have also had projects trying to do mobile screening for prostate cancer in Jamaica, and another project in Jamaica trying to improve communication about the importance of cervical cancer screening in ways that the local community participate in creating the materials and actually hopefully improving their understanding and eventually screening rates for cervical cancer. We have also started a project in the Dominican Republic to actually study cancer in firefighters, extending our firefighter experience from South Florida into our uh, colleagues and partners in the Caribbean as well. This is a project that has been sponsored for the Cancer Center for three years and we we'll hope that will continue to increase. In a soon-to-come episode, we're going to be discussing one of our visits to a partner in Brazil called Hospital de Amor, the Love Hospital, which is a cancer center that started in Barretos, uh, which is a small area at the western fringes of the, the state of Sao Paulo. And they now have a cancer center in the middle of the Amazon as well. And we hope that we'll be bringing some of that experience so that you can learn more about our efforts in global oncology. For now, this is the end of this episode. 
My name is Gilberto Lopes. I'm your host. Thank you for joining us at Cancer Docs Talk. And thank you for uh, listening. And all of us at Sylvester Comprehensive Cancer Center look forward to continue staying in touch. Thank you. You have been listening to Cancer Docs Talk with Dr. Gilberto Lopes, Associate Director of Global Oncology at Sylvester Comprehensive Cancer Center at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. We hope you'll join us next time for an update on the latest cancer news.